One, two, three. The following Laura Flanders show, audio exclusive, features the full uncut conversation from our episode titled Colette Pichon Battle on Climate Justice Reparations. They discuss what can we learn from the people living on the front lines of climate catastrophe. A couple of years after Hurricane Katrina, today's guest was invited to study a map, a map of predicted land loss due to climate change in southern Louisiana. The map showed massive devastation and the predicted disappearance of much of her home place due to rising tides and the encroachment of the ocean. Since then, millions of people have watched the TED talk that she gave about that experience. She and the organization she founded, the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, have become global leaders on the issue of just transition. Colette Pichon Battle has won prestigious awards, most recently the Heights Award for the Environment. Meanwhile, though, those sea waters have continued to rise. And as we record this, salt water is expected to enter New Orleans' drinking water any day now. Governor John Bell Edwards signed a state of emergency in August because of just this. And in September, President Joe Biden announced that he was making federal disaster assistance available. It is the reality that Pichon Battle has been alerting us to for years. Climate change isn't looming, it is here, with suffocating orange wildfire smoke, deadly heat waves and drenching rain, with hurricanes, floods, and landslides, we have crossed what some are calling the change horizon. Can it also be a liberation horizon? Colette believes that it can. To that end, in 2022, she founded a new organization, Taproot Earth, to expand her work to Appalachia, the global black diaspora and around the world. She's participated in COPs. She's participating in COP28, the UN Climate Change Conference in Dubai this year. She's also been on this program several times, but usually we're speaking at the speed of breaking news in some sort of urgent crisis. Today, we are taking time and devoting the whole program to her evolving understanding of how the crises of climate, migration, capitalism, extraction, and over-policing are connected, and what it is that is our work to do in these times. Colette Pichon Battle, it seems as if we never talk to you when you are at home. You are actually now in California as we begin this conversation, but I am terribly glad to have you on the show again. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be on the show. Let's start with just grounding ourselves with who is on our mind right now. Um, I could give you a long list, as I bet you could too, but top of your mind, who's with you today? Thank you for asking that question. Um, you know, I have learned a few things over over these 18 years since Katrina, and one of them has been really to... Um, start my day with some real reflection and meditation and gratitude and prayer. And so always with me at the beginning of any conversation are just all of my ancestors and the people who have uh, given me the courage and the bloodline that I have now to fight uh, this very large fight uh, with a lot of potential, a lot of possibility. And so I just think about um, the land I come from, which is Choctaw Territory in Southeast Louisiana. That's my grandmother's bloodline. Um, the Black folks um, who 
helped to build this country, um, especially in South Louisiana. That river, the Mississippi, was the entry point to a lot of Black people coming into uh, North America, coming into the United States. And so I can feel them sometimes, right? The essence of these families that have passed through South Louisiana in particular. Um, and I just think about um, so many people on the front lines um, today. I, I got to speak with a Libyan uh, attorney yesterday um, after the floods in Libya. And I've been able, this morning, I spoke with a woman in Kenya who was preparing for a climate gathering there. And I there are these amazing women fighting for their communities everywhere. And I get to talk with them and I get to be sisters with mm. them and I get to connect. So just thinking about them. And I, I also saw this cute kid this morning as I was getting some coffee. And I just thought, you know, they need us to win. Yeah. They need us to get this right. With so much in your home place of Southeast Louisiana um, and as you said, so much work to be done on the Gulf Coast. I was struck to hear that you had started a global initiative um, and one that took you out of that base. Why? And what does that work look like? You know, I could always feel it. I knew even before Katrina that I was um, a citizen of the world. Uh, my, my mother saw to that uh, with all of her children. But of course, I thought about it as all Americans do, right? Let me go to a place and see what I want to do and see how I want to help and what I want to learn. Um, it was that background in international relations. It was my background in international human rights that really helped me to understand what I was seeing in the aftermath of Katrina. And over the last few years, I've been at these international spaces as people give presentations on climate change and relocation and all of these things. And there's always a mention of South Louisiana and the land loss. There's always a mention of the BP oil drilling disaster. Louisiana is playing a role in a global conversation. And even after you move yourself from just the narrative part of this issue, you recognize that the issues that we're seeing in South Louisiana caused by particular sets of companies are being seen around the world. This issue of climate crisis and climate chaos does not stop at man-made borders. We're seeing particular conditions in places. I've had to learn about Bangladesh because they lose land the way Louisiana does because we're both sitting on river deltas. And there's a certain thing that you have to know about that kind of land and this kind of sea level rise. So the conversation about Louisiana is local, but it is absolutely part of a global narrative and a global understanding of the global issue of our lifetime. So what is Taproot Earth intended to do? I, you know, I was struck the other day. I, I, I was in a room and I was like, does anybody know what a taproot is? And nobody really knew <laughs> what it was. Um, and so it's important, I think, to say that uh, Taproot sees itself, uh, Taproot Earth, the organization, sees itself as the actual taproot. Uh, this is the main route that goes down um, into the ground. It is almost straight down. And it is from there that all of these other roots spin off of and grow off of. Uh, Taproot Earth really wants to be that. We want to build some deep foundational movement infrastructure so that models and new ways of doing things, new ways of being sustainable, new ways of thinking about our planet and how we relate to each other are actually uh, grounded by us, but stemmed off and moved um, and connecting to other root systems in other places. So we hope to change the system. We hope to challenge the economic system that's at the root of this climate crisis, is at the root of this philosophy of extraction. We don't just wanna complain. We don't just want to point out what's broken. We want to actually invest 
in frontline solutions to this global climate crisis. And this gets us to black liberation. A lot of the solutions are there. A lot of the impacts that we're seeing in frontline communities that we're acknowledging are what they are because of colonization and have what they have because of scarcity. But right now is the time to move with a lot more ability to edit, a lot, you know, a lot less stuff. Mm -hmm. um, how do we make solutions uh, with simple things and simple ways of, of thinking about the problem? I think this is an opportunity for us. And Taproot is really seeking to build out a network across the Gulf, Appalachia, the Black diaspora, to put forward some new ideas and new ways of being on the planet. Now, talk about the, the money aspect of that, because there is money involved. You're not just asking people to give up development altogether. Indeed. I mean, I I have to say, you know, I was in corporate law pre-Katrina. <laughs> That's, you know, I'm... The, the corporate lawyer is still inside. There are some very practical pieces to this climate conversation that we have to have. We need systems to run. We need people to be okay. That's part of this work. What we have to really get clear about, especially in the United States, is overconsumption and domination, right? That's not the same thing as everybody having what they need. And so I think we have to really do a better job um, in the climate community to say, like, this is this is really not about you changing those basic things that you need. It is about us taking a look at how much American consumption, American privilege, American desire for comfort is actually causing an imbalance to the planet. That said, we're going to have to use some of the systems that we have now until we have new and better ones. What does it mean for our capital system? What does it mean for investments that people might have so that they can have a, a sustainable, a solid future? What does it mean to actually take those investments out of the things that are harming the planet and put them into things that are advancing the planet? Why not take your money out of oil and gas and put it into renewable energy? Why not shift how you make your money or how you stabilize yourself into something that's not going to harm the planet or its people? These are the kinds of things we're talking about. Uh, we're also talking about a billion-dollar reparations fund to the ground. What does it mean for folks who are acknowledging that they have benefited for generations from theft, from, uh, you know, taking, what does it mean to have a place to be able to give that back? And that's really how we're thinking about our refund and, and our global refund and how that can be done in a governance, collective governance uh, by the front lines, but a contribution by people who are looking to move themselves through a process of repair. While we're talking about money, people may have heard that the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act dedicates some $370 billion towards climate resilience work. How does your refund differ from that? It was a piece of historic legislation, and I have to acknowledge that. But I also have to acknowledge in the very same breath, it sacrificed the Gulf. It said to the United States and all of our allies around the world that there is one region we're willing to kill, to sacrifice, to put on the chopping block, and that is the Gulf. It has the oil, it has the oil companies, it has the oil infrastructure. We will sacrifice that to save many other communities. And what what we're seeing- Just to clarify, Gulf Coast oil drilling was literally the price that the Biden administration had to pay to get that Inflation Reduction Act passed, right? Yeah, and, and it's- I'm not even sure it's Democrats or Republicans at this point. I think it's who's siding with the corporate power structure and who's siding with the people. I don't 
the the D and the R um, labeling for me is is almost insignificant at this point. If if you've got people with D's behind their names saying we want to give more money to the corporate structure that created the problem, this isn't just about jobs. This is about rewarding bad action. And what we've seen in this piece of legislation is in addition to historic ways of talking about climate and environment and investing in that is a, a doubling down on the benefit that corporations who have caused the problem, who knew that what they were doing would cause this global imbalance, were giving them the ability to say, we want to make the rest of the money that we've predicted into the future. And we want to try out technologies on communities that we don't care about. It is unequivocally racist and classist, and it's really a devaluation of humanity to allow these kind of technologies to be tried out on us. This is not the first time the South has had experimentation on our humanity. Explain what you mean by new technologies being tried out on people in the South. So the billions of dollars are going to carbon capture sequestration technologies that have not been proven to one, capture what they're supposed to capture out of the air. That's how the climate movement has sort of incorrectly made this conversation into a carbon reduction conversation. This is not just about carbon reduction, but if you think it is, then you build technologies to reduce carbon. But those technologies have not proven to reduce the carbon. In fact, the reports that are coming out now are saying they're doing less than what they said they were capable of doing, if they're doing anything at all. And for all of those people who say the the, the communities that are next to these facilities are safe, there are now multiple instances where leaks have caused communities to be zombies walking in the street because they've been poisoned by invisible odorless gas that is or invisible odorless substances that have gotten into them and and it is this technology this carbon capture carbon capture utilization hydrogen technologies gray and pink and blue these are terrible investments but they are billion dollar profit gaining experimentations for the same industry that got us here in the first place. And I have to say that because that is what the historic legislation brought to us, an acknowledgement of environment and climate in a particular way, but also uh, a, a repeated sacrifice of the South in a very familiar and terrible way. Our, so the refund is different. The, re- the refund is different. And our work is saying, we have got to take this capital if we have to deal with capital at all. We've got to take this capital and use it not just for uh, guilt, which we're seeing a lot, right? The the George Floyd sort of racial reckoning, sort of climate reckoning. We're seeing money move out of guilt. And you can feel the energy on that, right? Uh, We're sorry we didn't fund the Black folks or the frontline folks in the first place. Let's try to get it out. That's fine for a first step, but that's not sustainable. Guilt is not even the kind of energy you want on this. This refund is saying for those who want to go through a particular journey of repair and restoration, this is a place to put dollars that will then be collectively governed by the front lines who were extracted from in the first place. They will decide, they will practice their own autonomy. They will practice their own self-determination. They will move back from that individual way of thinking of capital to a collective way of thinking of managing our collective resources. And that is how the dollars will be dispersed. This is about investment in people and ways and cultures that have not been persuaded to be the individual uh, exceptional savior, but who understand we need each other to survive 
and our resources and the investment in our resources and our innovations have to flow in that direction. Is investment coming and where is it coming from? So we're just starting off. Um, it's been really interesting to have folks ask about this, right? To have corporations actually ask, you know, what can we do with our sustainability program toward this refund? To have individually wealthy people say, what does it mean? I'm recognizing that my family got money from oil. How do I give this to a, you know, how do I give this back? What's a way to give this back? To even have politicians say, what kind of legislation can we draft in order to show that this kind of fund is the type of fund we need to see replicated all over the place, including at the government level? We have not yet begun to really uh, target the money coming in, but we have begun to have conversations about how do we uh, not give people absolution for their contribution, but take a really prop, a really personal journey toward repair that could end with a contribution, but does not just give you that contribution as, you know, I've paid my reparations, I'm fine, and I'm my soul is clean. Um, so the process has just begun. Uh, what we have gotten together first is Taproot Noir, a global Black climate leaders network, and started building up a governance circle of folks who will determine what happens with that money. And we'll go get the money um, starting in 2024 in a more direct way. And we welcome everyone to really think about that. You know, what is this climate crisis? This is a moment to really think about our role and our bloodline. What have we contributed to? What have we benefited from? And how do we put things in right order? How do we rebalance? The refund is going to be a great way to do it, but it's really just going to be a drop in the bucket. It's going to be a model for new financial uh, systems, for ways of being that can be replicated around the world. If Chevron came to you tomorrow, as Chevron has come to countries around the world, most recently the South American country of Guyana, and say, give us the right to uh, drill offshore and we will bring great riches to your country. That's what they've said to Guyana, a country with uh, medium incomes of something like $9,000 a year at the beginning of this decade. It's attractive. The mostly the country's going for it. They say they're going to put the money towards resilience programs, et cetera, et cetera. If Chevron came to you tomorrow and your friends at Taproot and said, listen, we'll give you a cut of all the money that we're going to be drilling over the next uh, few decades, and not to mention our gas inventions too, um, what do you say? Uh, what a, it, This is a great question. You know, these corporations and how they come in and, and what they do. I mean, there, there's a little bit of context to put around Guyana and Réunion and Madagascar and Kenya. And the context is we have to do enough grassroots organizing so that people understand they are in the poverty and the shape they're in right now because of the extractive philosophy of corporations like Exxon and Chevron. It's just important to organize and develop political alignment so that these countries that are being offered these very attractive packages of uh, uh, save your money um, understand that the only reason they need the money and are in that type of poverty in the first place is because of the actions of these corporations. It's not going to solve anything. That's that's the first part. It's not going to solve the big thing. I think the other thing I want to say, and this is just um, a very sobering reality that I would tell any country, anybody, and 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 everybody around me. There are these moments of climate disasters where money means nothing. If you don't have access to your natural resources, you do not survive. We learned this in the BP oil drilling disaster when there were hundreds 
of thousands of gallons of oil in the one resource that every poor person had access to, which is the water. You couldn't fish. You couldn't get the very basic things you needed because technically BP bought the water with that oil. They want to buy everything. They want to buy access to the natural resources that we have. But if Africa, if South America, if, if, if indigenous places around the world really understood that the way they have been protecting, living and sustaining land is the most valuable thing we have in this fight against climate change, then they would understand there is no amount of money that should allow for drilling to happen. Instead, we should be asking for what we deserve even without drilling. Why don't you just have Chevron pay back all of the millions of dollars in royalties that it owes to every frontline community? Let's let's make those demands. We don't have to be on our knees here. In fact, if we recognize our power, we can make the demands that we know we deserve. And if they don't comply, we can build new alliances to make new solutions. While we're talking water, I do want to ask you what you know about the New Orleans drinking water situation. Oh, man, this is... This is my worst nightmare. Um, and I'm coming out of Katrina telling you this is my worst nightmare. My worst nightmare in the climate crisis is that people turn to the big events, the big storm, the big fire. Um, but what I understand to be true is that our people, my people, poor people, black people, rural people across the front lines, we are most in trouble when it comes to the heat, that silent rising heat. And we are most in trouble when it comes to accessing clean water because we have a system that is privatizing water for folks to have access to. And the public water, like the Mississippi River, has big companies, Exxon uses more fresh water out of the Mississippi than all of the population of Baton Rouge. They use that for their refinery. They literally, the people of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, have asked Exxon to stop using the river water because they're taking too much. This is, this is where we get to troublesome conclusions about what's going to happen when humans don't have the very thing that their life depends on, which is access to clean water. Right now, what we're seeing in South Louisiana is not just salt water coming up the Mississippi River, which is the most voluminous river in North America. It's not the longest, but it is the biggest. They call it the mighty Mississippi. They call it the Mechachebe. That is the indigenous word. It means big water. The big water has diminished so much that the sea level rise is coming in and it's coming up the fresh water. Everyone's watching when the salt water will hit New Orleans, but it, it has already hit Plaquemines Parish. We were down there two months ago talking to people who didn't have access to fresh water. These are small indigenous communities that nobody cares about, but we haven't had water for a long time now. This is a problem, but this is not the only place where there's a problem. Sea level rise, heat, access to water, access to energy that we don't have to pay extra money for. These are the things that have to be on the table. No more drilling, no more destruction. We need to start solving these problems and we've got to start from the front line. Please support our work with a donation today. All the information is at our website. That's lauraflanders.org. The front lines no question, are raced and gendered and classed in, in the way that you've described. Um, 
at the same time, people in very affluent cities and places have been feeling it. New York City couldn't use the subways, saw what it was like to be flooding the way that it did uh, this at the end of this summer. Um, the mountains, northeast, felt what it was like not to be able to breathe the air with the wildfire smoke turning the skies orange. It all begins to feel so huge that it can become disempowering or worse, we can run into preferring denial. Just let me go back and we can see which politicians are catering to that. It's all the climate uh, the climate conservationists' problem that we're here. Uh, how do you start picking that apart? And how do you look to those ancestors you mentioned at the beginning to see a future that is not just resilient against awful, but actually joyful and perhaps has richness that we haven't met yet or can't remember? I mean, I think going back to the ancestors, while it will be unfamiliar to so many people, especially Americans, um, it is actually the place to begin. One of the biggest problems we have, especially in understanding the climate crisis and the role that people play toward a climate solution or the many climate solutions, one of the biggest problems we have is our understanding of time and mortality. In indigenous traditions, you are not the center of the universe. In the indigenous traditions, your life is not the only life. In the indigenous traditions around the world, there was something before you and something after you, and you are playing a very small but important role in managing an entire system of people who are connected to each other. Right now, that climate fear, that nihilism, that denial is because people have been completely indoctrinated into a level of individualism that has cut them off from their people and their story and this broader story of humanity. We will feel like we cannot do it if all we have is one lifetime and one person. That's right, we will lose. It necessarily drives us to, we have to reconnect first to who we are. I don't need you know, white allies learning about African traditions and then repeating them to me, that's not helpful. What I need is white allies learning about whatever ethnicity, whatever cultural tradition they come from and how did they live with the land because everybody did. And how do we put those things together? I'll go get my African tradition, you go get your Irish one. Turns out we both have warriors. Why aren't we fighting together for the sake of this planet? And then it becomes very doable if I know I got people I can call in different countries connections that we've made across oceans, tra tra traditions and culture that is before the Bible and will exist long after the last person standing. If you know you have that, then what you have is the power to change the trajectory that we're on right now. But right now, especially in the United States, and I would say Western Europe and many places that are being Westernized, we have put our investment in the individual, individual success individual lifespan. You see people wanting longer life and having trouble with even talking about what happens after you're gone. Traditions, cultural traditions, indigenous traditions have told us for a long time, this is not about you, but you are part of a very special family of humans. You have to play your role, you have to play your part, and then you have to connect to others. That's the answer when it gets too big, when it gets too deep. It is personal transformation, but it's personal transformation rooted in who you are 
and connected to who we all are as a as a human a human race. So how so, do you respond? And how do you respond to the cynic white person? Not me, but I know these people <laughs> who would say, as the right is getting more mean and targeted and determined to extract the very last that they possibly can. And let's face it, every effort for legislative change around climate change has either been attacked or reversed or over overhauled by uh, its critics, whether in the courts or in Congress. What do you say to people that as the right is getting more mean and targeted, um, progressives are getting more metaphysical? And is that a fair match? That is a great question. While the right is getting more mean, the progressives are getting more metaphysical. Is it a fair match? It might be. Um, you know, mean and hate comes from fear. And I, I, my, 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 you know, I, my next door neighbor is a Trump voter. Is my, my, my whole life I grew up in like conservative Louisiana. My whole family's Catholic. Like there is a, there is a, there is a level of conservative. There's a type of conservative that is actually a good human. <laughs> they love their family. They, they help the neighbors with the garbage cans. They, you know, they, they want you to be okay. They might disagree with you politically, but they're not mean. They're not hateful. And mostly the relationship is not fear based. I think we just might have to get metaphysical to deal with people's fear and a collective movement of fear that that might actually be uh, the better matchup. Because what we won't be able to do is get a lot of progressives or lefts left folks or pacifists or people who don't want to fight or into a fight. That's, that's not how you, that's not how you win. Uh, you got to match up even evenly. I do think the left has um, a deeper respect for the metaphysical, right? I watched the right take the God narrative, right? Certainly the Jesus narrative, maybe not God, but the Jesus narrative, which offends me personally because Jesus would not be pleased. Um, but I watched them take that narrative and sort of turn it into power and oppression. I think there are deep traditions on the left that say the teachings of Christ, the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings that many of us have tell us that we need each other and tell us that this planet is sacred. And that's what we can, that's what we have to move on and believe in even against all odds. I think about the civil rights movement. We just lost an elder Hollis Watkins um, and went to his, his services, and I think about like what they face. They face guns in their and dogs on their bodies and hoses on them. That had to be terrifying. But they stood in the metaphysical of love. They stood in the metaphysical of liberation. They stood in those invisible things. And he at 90 left us, not at 16 when he was when he was fighting. And things changed and people changed. So it might be a decent matchup. Um, <laughs> we're gonna need some. We're gonna need some practical models uh, and some practical shifts as well. But I'll take the matchup. Well, we've just heard from you. You've got a reef investment fund and you've got a vision. So um, let's talk about the vision piece. Um, sure, we're only going to realize a piece of it in our our lifetimes. But you're seeing and studying and connecting with and um, visiting people all over the world. Tell us what you're finding that could give people a glimpse of something beyond this, 
minute beyond this situation that we're in that that might make us be able to be fueled also by a love and desire for this kind of change because i think that's often what we're missing in our climate discussion we've got to just hunker down and do make do with less absolutely but maybe there's something in it that will feed our souls yeah yeah i mean the the make do with less is really the the thing we have to change right it's not less we we overconsume <laughs> You really will be fine with like not having all of the stuff in your closet that you never use. You, it's 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 not less. It's it's um it's honorable. It's not scarcity. You know, it's honoring. Um, and I would say there are beautiful stories out there. There are beautiful. Um, there's beautiful resistance out there. I was just in Ireland and I met with this this uh, man, I'd say he was about 50, in his 50s, and he bought this pipeline in Ireland and and they're treating the people really bad and it's Northern Ireland and it's a whole complicated thing. But he brought his daughter with him to this gathering and she was fighting too. And I thought to myself, all right, not only are there Irish folks who understand what oppression is, who understand what the fight for liberation is, and who understand what it is to protect a beautiful and sacred place. Not only does the guy exist, but he has his daughter training up with him to protect their land, to protect who they are. Um, and I got a lot of respect for the Irish culture. I had to start learning about that long fight and understanding where their fight links with mine. And that's just not something I grew up knowing about. Uh, learning about um, a journalist in in Mali who was put in jail. She was kept from her five children and in jail because of a Facebook post. And it was just watching these governments come down on their people if they have any um, any type of critique or criticism coming at the government. You know, this is when you appreciate the United States. I know everybody's got critiques. I got critiques. Um, but, you know, to be put in jail for a Facebook post because you offended somebody means we've got to look at democracy and the vision and the goal of democracy in a different way. And we've got to build a democratic society based on the testimony of this woman who was put in jail away from her children. What does democracy look like for a black woman in a West African country away from her children? What does due process and right order mean? And what does the right to speak and speech really mean. We're watching folks use that rhetoric in the United States to harm people when she's using the right to speech to help people. Like we, we've got to really dive into these conversations. I don't know that I would have thought about that, um, you know, had I not met this person who, who had this reality. What does that look like? And I'm just drawing on New York because I'm living there, but New York City right now dealing with a climate crisis, dealing with what is described as a migrant crisis, dealing with a policing crisis and who knows what else, a democracy crisis probably as well. What does it look like? And and when I say that your sort of evolving philosophy is connecting all these things, how so? Well, a, a very interesting connection is that I was in corporate immigration law pre-Katrina. And when I went home after Katrina, um, I had a civil rights case first and an immigration case second. Um, and could not understand how my skills in immigration had anything to do with that disaster, but quickly learned what climate 
disaster migration was going to look like, what it meant to have people crossing borders out of Louisiana into Texas, into Tennessee, into Georgia, and have them still have a claim to land, an identity in a place, but be um, displaced. Um, and what their rights are. What did voting look like if you were displaced for the long term? What did that mean? Would they have the vote um, for mayor in New Orleans like a year later? And it's like, what does that, what does your democracy look like if your people are displaced? And when does displacement equal um, permanent displacement versus temporary displacement? And I think about that now as I watch um, what's happening um, with the sanctuary cities and the way some of these conservatives are really um, making a, 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 they're really dehumanizing mostly black and brown bodies to prove a point, mostly to white folks, that you have something to be afraid of with these black and brown bodies. And the way to deal with that fear is domination and hate and, and oppression. Um, I, I have learned that while race as an identifier gives me a particular understanding of, of oppression in this country, I have to understand oppression on a much bigger scale. I have to understand queer liberation and reproductive justice and racial justice all together or else we don't actually advance. And so when I think about immigrants, migrants, migration, internally displaced people, people who need to cross borders, I have to ask questions about borders. When did the borders get here and who made them? And what were they a part of? These borders were a part of domination. These borders were a part of colonization. And the wealth, especially that the, the power class wants to protect, was never worked for. It was stolen. And so what is it to change this moment? It is to look at migration as a solution, as, some, as a natural pattern. Now we've got to study natural patterns of the environment so that we can understand natural patterns of what people who are part of the environment could be doing as a solution to this crisis. And you've got to root it in sustainability, not fear, but love. And how do you shift that? These are the dots to connect. When I think about New York, I remember, you know, as a Southerner, we have to deal oftentimes with how the Northeast and the West Coast thinks about the South. You know, uh, we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, and we don't know what to do. Uh, and I remember both in Sandy and in the most recent floods, uh, it's the front lines that folks have to call to ask, what do we do when we flood? Well, how do we get out of this uh, part of the disaster? This is an opportunity for us to rekin ourselves, for us to become brothers and sisters again and say, I want you to survive. There are many dots here, but they all connect to liberation. Nobody's free until everybody's free. That's what Fannie Lou Hamer said. And we've got to really understand that you and your solid bank account mean nothing when the banks go down and the buildings are flooded. It means nothing. But your humanity is what will save you. And we've got to understand how to advance each other's humanity by ensuring each other's liberation, which means we're going to have to confront systems of power and, and strategies of oppression and move them into a bigger and better place for, you know, for our, for our soul's sake, for our humanity's sake. There's an opportunity here to understand food and water and reproductive justice and prisons and education systems. There is an opportunity and a necessity to understand them all together. And that's this moment. We call it a liberation horizon. If we choose to be our best selves in this moment, if we choose to work through fear in this moment, if we choose courage and each other, 
we can actually stop not just the oppression of my people, but the oppression of yours. As a Northeast white person, I'm asking for your expertise. And I'm going to ask you to go back to where you began in this conversation and to that precious home place of yours and your people going back um, generations. You've just, we started by saying we're looking at the predicted destruction of places like that, specifically that place. How are you thinking about that as you also say we have to embrace migration? Are you embracing? that loss? And I ask because I know that I need to be thinking about this too. I come from a culture in South Louisiana that it's it's so rich. I have indigenous culture that I have access to from both Turtle Island, now North America, and Africa. And because, because the South Louisiana and the Mississippi River was what it was to the transatlantic slave trade. There are a lot of African traditions in this area that have withstood time um, for many reasons. What I know is that when people come to a city like New Orleans and they see a jazz funeral or they see a second line march, they see fun, they see party, they see a, a, a reason to get free and to get in it. Um, and that's right. That's exactly what it is. But what it also is, is ritual. It's ritual that says life is precious and short. When it is gone, you must celebrate every aspect of it. And when it is here, you must just as a human live it to the fullest as best you can. But loss is a part of life. Death is a part of a life cycle. You are not alone in a box. You are being ushered to your next transition. And there are people in essence behind you dancing, a whole line dancing behind you to make sure that your memory and who you are and what you brought is carried into the next, the next iteration, then into the future. I am often taking rides in the bayou where I live, witnessing things, um, I got excited the other day. I saw a bird I'd never seen before. It's time for the birds to migrate. Um, I find the role of witness an important one. And I am being called to be a witness and a storyteller about the truth so that everybody doesn't have to go through this. It's not blissful, but it is, it is okay. You know, it's it's all right to say goodbye. It's okay to move and leave. We, we've got to remember, we've got to witness, but we don't have to fear um, mm. the unknown. So no, it's not an easy thing to do. It's a lot of grief. Um, my land, my people's land, no matter what we do, will be lost to the sea, uh, to the rising seas. Um, and I have to think about what that means. For these trees, for these birds, um, for our cemeteries, for our houses, you know, what does this mean? But also when we go to the next place that we go, what do we bring? Um, how do we bring the best of who we are to that next place? Because the truth is, I didn't start in South Louisiana. My bloodline doesn't start there. 
you know, not even the Choctaw. Like they were, they moved the natives around. They moved, you know, people were moved around. People moved around naturally. So it's not an easy process, but I come from culture and tradition that says there is a way to say goodbye. And that is what I choose to do, to say goodbye on my own terms in from a place of power, not from a place of victimization and a lack of self-determination. I will be here until I die. And when I die, what I leave behind will go to the next place, but it will be the most beautiful parts of South, South Louisiana and the strongest parts of my bloodline. All that we know is sure is change, right? Um, I want to close by asking you what the story will be that the future tells of now. I think I've asked you this before, but it's different all the time. In this moment, what are you thinking will be the story the future tells? Um, I hope the story the future tells of now will be um, about humanity coming to um, its best level ever. We have somehow figured out how to overcome the need to oppress in order to elevate ourselves and have figured out the beautiful harmony of balance and equality and diversity. We overcame the biggest challenges, right? The challenge of trust, the challenge of fear, um, the challenge of scarcity mindset. We've overcome those things and we have landed on love and abundance. And we've created a world where we can all live and rest and thrive. May it be so. Uh, Colette, thank you so much. Uh, it's just always so heart-riching to, to hear you and, and to be with you. So thank you. And I look forward to... Thank you for everything you do for the ground. Thank you for the stories you share. Thank you for the truth you tell. It's important to us. So just you're an amazing, amazing griot for us. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can thank the Irish. That was the uh, first place hey. I went as a reporter. Okay. Northern Ireland. I learned most of the things I know that have been useful. So um, I'm so glad you got to go there and hear some of those stories. And I, it's really been great hearing you today. So thank you. Thank you.